now listening to the Film Situation Podcast. I'm so happy to have my friend Jonah Schwartz on the Film Situation Podcast. Happy to be here. Give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself, Jonah. My name is Jonah Schwartz, and I am a filmmaker of many years. And I'm glad you're here today because Jonah and I actually attended a film. We attended SVA together. We did a yeah. workshop when we were still in high school. We uh, back yeah. in the day, real each back other in the day. since high school, and a lot of mutual friends in the punk rock scene. That's New right. New York. Yeah. Yeah. Back when we had spiky hair a long time ago. Yeah. And along with our friend Mike Reich, yeah. who's also in the class, who's also a filmmaker. Yeah. And living out in the West Coast. And yeah, we were all in weekend SVA film program. I think I did it twice. Did we do it? Did you do it twice? I was supposed to do the second one. The second one. The first one was an eight millimeter film cl- class. And then Mike was like, oh, let's do the 16 millimeter film. And I think. I just couldn't do it the yeah. second one, but I didn't. I didn't end up taking the second course. Was it the same professor? I remember there was a guy. It was named- Sal Petrosino. I still remember this man. Dub, dub. That was his name, Petrosino. I always Petrosino. thought it was Simonetti. No, Sal Petrosino. I Good know memory. that. I know this because I never went to SVA, but I met a lot of people who went to SVA, and every time I meet someone, I'm like, "Oh, you went to SVA, or Sal Petrosino?" They're like, "Do I?" I guess he's like old. He's bring it even old. closer. I think he's like an OG over there. So, yeah. He had I a good, rep- everyone, good reputation. Everyone knows him. Yeah. yeah. But it was a funny story is I do remember in that class, he was like, you're never going to make it in this industry. He said that? Yeah, to, to all me. of us? Or no, no, to you? just to me. Why? Because I didn't do his homework. Oh, interesting. Yeah, fun fact. But now as an adult, I look you back like, do the you homework. know he's, he's got a good point. I should have done that homework. <laughs> maybe I would have been further in my life. Oh, no. If I had learned this discipline, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, fond memories. Many fond memories. Yeah. This thing has, like, an adjustable arm, so feel free to... All right. There you go. Okay. Nice. There we go. Lovely. Yeah. Oh, I remember... I, yeah, I remember that class, and I remember the 16-year-old me was a little bit daunted by how much work is involved in filmmaking. I don't know if you felt like that, but I certainly felt that way at the time. I was like, yeah. holy shit, this is a lot of work. I don't think I... I don't think I ever was, like... I don't think I ever processed, like, the amount of work it takes. It was I was, like, just so, like, blindly doing shit at that time where yeah. it wasn't really intimidating. And we were, like, splicing film. To it, me, it was a it little... It was just the homework. That was, like, just in high school, just the idea of homework in general. It didn't matter if, like, I was interested in it. I was like, oh, fuck, oh, fuck <laughs> I didn't take too much work. I didn't take the homework that seriously either if it makes you feel better i used to do my homework sometimes on the train on the way there yeah and i remember one time one of the assignments was we had to storyboard a scene like reverse engineer like a scene and i remember 16 years old and i chose a scene from the lost boys where i keep where where the older brother character he's like hanging on the ledge and i did it all from memory oh wow and but i don't think i don't think i did a good job i think i probably got like a c on the assignment it's good that's you got really good memory man i can't i'm trying to remember like anything i did in that class it was a long time ago. I think we did shoot something. Yeah, we sh- we shot some stuff, and I remember we were always on a team. It was like me, you, Mike, and then there was a girl from Spain that uh, was yeah. like part of our group. And yeah, yeah. I, I remember I didn't, unlike yourself, I didn't immediately pursue film. I then went to school for business. I started a welding business. I took a different route in life. And then I think by the time I was in my 20s, I realized like everything is hard work. Yes. No matter what you pursue, it's going to be like hard work. 
Yeah. So you might as well do what you love. Yeah, you might yeah. as well, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How about your trajectory, man? Did you go did you immediately go to film school right after high school? Yeah, man. I always knew what I wanted to do, but no fucking clue how to do it. So I think even before I was taking that SVA class, I was like, I'm gonna make movies. I'll make movies. Probably since I was in middle school. Yeah. I was making little films. Then I was making little animations with action figures. I was making claymation. And then in high school, I was making little short movies and stuff. I went, I also, t I went to University of the Arts in Philly for a summer in high school too. And I did a film course there. I made a short. Did Pat also go over there at some point? You Pat, no, Pat, my good friend Pat. No, he, he moved to Philly later oh, okay, on gotcha. in his life. Yeah, he's, yeah. But that's his home base nowadays. But, Just um, keep in touch. Yeah, actually, we do. We do. We played in a couple bands together, too. That's I awesome, like, Yeah. Tell them I said what's up. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But, uh, so, yeah, I was all, it was something I was always doing. And when I was choosing college and figuring out what to do, it was definitely, like, film school. It's the best film school. And I applied to SV. I didn't get in. I didn't get in the... NYU. Petrosino didn't write you a good recommendation? Uh, I guess not. I guess not. <laughs> I didn't have, I wasn't the best high school student. I wasn't, not, I not wasn't horrible. Either. Yeah. But uh, didn't have grades to get into high school. I didn't get my act together until college as far as applying myself in any sort of yeah, real life. Yeah. I definitely, that's the thing is like I knew what I wanted to do, but I definitely didn't have my act together either. I, like I said, I, what I was doing, I just knew what I wanted to do, but I wasn't like wasn't very clear-minded on like how to achieve it so yeah. i just do shit and so that for the longest time that was my career trajectory was just like what can i do that's involved in production so i did everything i could and i started working in i mean out of i went to film school i did two years ithaca college and i actually ended up leaving that college because it just wasn't enough film it was just like just it was a, such a standard college where like most of the courses are about stuff that I didn't particularly care too much about, but I had to take it to get the credits. And I was like, no, I just want to do film. Anyway, that didn't work out for me. I went, came back home and I actually went to New York Film Academy for a year. And I did that extensive film program there. How did you find that? Was that rewarding? That, that was perfect for me. I was like, that was, I did that one year there. I was like, I don't need to go to college yeah. because that was the one thing. I don't know how it is now. It's probably different nowadays because... The technology is just so much more accessible and anyone could just go and do shit. But they're really gatekeeping the production materials for students at that time. I don't know what kids go through these days, but like, yeah, you don't even get to touch a camera for the first two years in school. It's crazy. So yeah. they, and which is great, too, because in in exchange, you're learning a lot of theory, which is just priceless information that I've retained to this day so I'm very glad I did that but also for me at that time where I'm like don't have the patience for any of this shit I was like no I just need to make stuff so I did New York Film Academy and made a bunch of stuff there and left with the confidence that like I can make anything I learned how to edit learn how to shoot learn how to work cameras lenses lighting everything like all in a year because that's all we did all day every day so that was fantastic. And then out of college, I just tried to find my way into the industry. I had no connections in the film industry, but my father comes from television background. He's a TV producer. I had a lot of connections in that industry. So always was able to get good like PA jobs on a lot of TV shows. So that's what my start was in television. 
working PA jobs, and I interned too on a lot of film sets, just PA and, and that kind of stuff in the beginning. And then after a couple of years of working on a lot of different shows, TV shows, one show I was working on, eventually I got the opportunity to shoot. And I would be shooting like B camera for, or it was like a- And that was on a series? Yeah, it was like on, I think it was on the E network or something. It was like, there was two shows. I was, I started shooting for the same company and they were both, one was like a home improvement show and the other was like a shopping makeover show. Yeah. But I would be shooting B camp. So that was my introduction to shooting professionally because, you know, up until that point, I'd just been shooting for myself, just making videos at home. Escape videos, shooting and this and shooting that. I'm um, sure it was like a boot camp sort of experience for you because on TV they have to turn things around so fast, and I'm sure they kept you busy, right? Yeah, yeah. It was just, that was the first time I've someone's given me an assignment. Yeah, here like everything I've I have yeah for stuff where it was like a school project that was also an assignment, but for the most part everything I made or shot to that point has been it's just oh I want to make this and then just do it and. So were you shooting, did you have to edit for that show or you just had to turn stuff over for an editor? No, I would just, at that time it was just handing over footage. And then eventually I, on that same show, started working like an assistant editor too, just like loading footage overnight and doing that kind of stuff on the Avids. Oh, I've I've always had my hands in all areas of the production, I guess, because I started from editing and shooting everything myself so i always just carried over yeah all the other work that i would do i guess i started off as an editor at that time when like high school days i worked at a small production company it was like doing event stuff like weddings and bar mitzvahs but it was on the old school decks linear editing yeah yeah, you know tape to tape doing i was when i was working in a tv show it was a beta cam we were low i was a digitizing beta cam oh wow yeah yeah you learned the Avid. Digibetas. Yeah. I didn't really learn to edit on the Avid. I just learned to load footage and market. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it was fun getting to work on that big fancy machine, though, and that, at the time. So, so Jonah has done a substantial amount of music videos that you've directed for yeah, so the, pla- the Black Keys. You did a video for the Black Keys. You've done videos for Prodigy of Mob Deep. Yeah. A I lot get- of Freddie... Gibbs. Freddie Gibbs, yeah. Bob, Currency, some of my favorite artists I've had the pleasure of working with. A bunch of videos for him. How'd you get into music videos in general? Yeah, so it's a interesting story. I think is honestly, it just, just gravitated towards it. Had no specific desire or goal to be a music video director. But basically... I grew up raised on music videos, like same, yeah. Uh, especially my most formative years, like middle school, even more than high school, like middle school, when I would yeah. really be home all day watching TV. Yeah, as MTV, Yo MTV raps, and Video Music Box. Yeah, and I those and I would before I ever got into punk, I was into rap since like fifth grade, so I was obsessed with all the videos of that era. Anyway, then. Honestly, did yeah. nothing with rap or music or anything. I was working in TV and I was doing other stuff. But anytime I made my own stuff, it was always very musical. It would always had some music in the background, like editing to a song, this or that. You know what so, just popped into my head? I remember you had, I think it was a website or a zine or something. 
and you made a character Yanni Rotten. Oh yes, I did. I really, I, that was that's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> I had in high school. I had a punk rock website for the New York punk rock scene. I just like post ramblings. Mostly, it was just like I would. Act, it was actually an outlet. For, it was like before there were blogs and shit. But yeah, it was high, really. Yeah, we're going back the early days. This of the is, yeah, this is. Before MySpace or what? This like is web just, pages yeah. had counters at the bottom yeah, of them. Yeah, this is like Co- Yahoo. Angel, my my account was on Angel Fire. Angel Fire. Yeah, I remember wow. that. Yeah. Um, yeah, really early internet days, but but I remember I, that was pretty funny. Stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's so bad, but in high school, I started doing photography, and I would take pictures of shows. That's all I would do. That's the only kind of photos I would take. I would just go to the shows, take photos, develop them in school, and then I would scan them. And post them on my punk rock website. And it also like lists shows and stuff. And then I don't know why one day I wrote, this was not an assignment for school, just a creative writing that came out of my mind. But I wrote this like weird fake story about Yanni, the, 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 the singer pianist, Yanni, live at the Acropolis. For some reason, I was like, let me write a bad story about Yanni after he he gave up his piano career and turned into a punk rocker. And then I photoshopped a fake picture of Yanni with, and put like a mohawk and like a nose ring on him and stuff. It was, yeah. And was it actually Photoshop? Like I didn't use Photoshop. No, it was until, Photoshop. Yeah. yeah. It was Photoshop. But my mother is a graphic designer. So she always had all the Adobe programs. So I was, always, I would always fuck around with Photoshop. And That's stuff. pretty cool. And it was harder to use back then for sure. Like now it's more. Uh, right? Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, to be honest, I don't, I'll use Photoshop now. I don't know what the fuck's going on because that was probably the time when I was oh, using gotcha. it the most in high school. But yeah. Yeah, it was definitely. But early sort of days of internet photoshopping yes, for sure. Yeah, I was ahead of the curve there. But yeah, I think I got I think I think got off the rails. Wait, I was talking about, talking about the music, music videos, videos and yeah. how I gravitated towards it. But I was going to say was that I had no big goal of making music videos. And then I ended up, this is totally separate from the career path but i ended up diverting from my career path and i moved to japan and that's a whole other story that's pretty cool and i lived there for four years i learned japanese i worked at a japanese commercial production company there for a year that's a whole other giant chapter of my life that's interesting for sure feel free to unpack that yeah yeah but uh, while i was in japan now and what years was that you went to japan (sighs) i'm gonna say like early 2000 maybe like 2003 or 4 maybe 2004 i went yeah. there and then yeah i was i went to i lived in kyoto for 2 years where i studied like uh, lost in translation yeah but with, with but more with the translation cuz i was learning japanese so yeah after a while i was not so lost in translation right there. the uh, film took place in kyoto right no, I did, Lost in Translation was in Tokyo, but they did have a scene in Kyoto where okay, she like, travels there. Yes. But, hey, that was a heavy... At the time, I was like, not because of that movie by itself, just for many things in my life, I was like always inspired by stuff from Japan. And, and then I went there on a trip once and, and it like totally just changed my life. I was like, oh my God, I need to be here more and experience more of this so anyway i've been moving there and then while i was out there i start i would be hanging out in the clubs a lot of partying there too because there's a lot of fun fun stuff out there in the nightlife and i became friends with a lot of rappers out there who looked like local rappers and uh, i had actually had just my visa in tokyo at the time had just ran out and i was planning to 
moved back to New York from Tokyo after all that time because I was like, I don't got a visa. I got to figure some stuff out. And one of my rapper friends in Tokyo was like, oh, let me introduce you to this guy in New York. He's doing a documentary on one of my artists from my label in Japan, and uh, he wants to meet you. Maybe you got you guys have a lot of uh, mutual connections, whatever. Anyway, so he introduced me to this guy. His name is Sam Cole, great guy. And he was doing a documentary, a feature-length documentary on this artist in Japan by the name of Anarchy from Kyoto. And uh, basically, it was like it just clicked, right timing, right people, everything. And they hired me to shoot this documentary for a few months, sent me to Japan with the camera and just following this guy for, for a while, like living with them. We were like in the projects in Kyoto, going on tour with him in Tokyo. And then in that time, because I'm rolling around with him, I'm also going on, I'm meeting so many other artists, rappers, and just being out there and being out there with the camera and being around all these people. Then I got offered a job uh, as a DP for a music video. So it was, and it's actually for a really big group out there called Nitro Microphone on Your Ground. They're like, they're dope. They're like the Wu-Tang of Japan. They're a huge, big group. That's pretty cool. And they were doing a video with actually an American director from New York who also spoke Japanese named Tim McGurr, also known as 13th Witness. He's a famous <coughs> photographer. And anyway, he was, I actually, I had never met him before, but we got introduced to those guys, the mutual friends. And they were like, oh, this guy's from, from New York. He's directing it, but he's, he's a photographer. We need a DP. So to, we need someone who does video. So they got me on, and I DP'd this music video. We had a big budget. Every, not huge budget, but still. This, budget. A, this a is real like budget. way light years beyond anything I've ever touched right. in my life. But I was just like, let's go. Like yeah. I was winning way over my head, but once again, not really... Like, the scope of work was never something... I'm always, like, I have blinders on when I do yeah. that shit. Even though I was out over my head, I wasn't, like... You didn't feel scared. like that at the moment. Yeah. I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. Let's just do it. <laughs> Fucking... And then, but it came out great. That And then the video was, like... I think it, it got nominated for, like, a music video award there. So I was like, oh... I think I'm doing something right here. And yeah. then, and then, but also I was like in, in making that video, even though I didn't direct it, I was like so involved with the, with the process and even editing Like I, I edited the rough cut for it. I was just so involved in every part of the process where I came out of it. Just, okay, I can do this. I could do this too. I could direct it. I could do the same thing. I have shots I want to get. When I did come back to America, I was like, Try to, let me try to get into some hip-hop shit here. Yeah. And uh, luckily, I had some connections. One of my best friends, his name is Jeremy Dash. His his brother is a very famous hip-hop personality by the name of Damon Dash. And he yeah. used to do Rockefeller Records with Jay-Z and a bunch of movies. He's a very, very well-known figure in that industry. Anyway, I got introduced to him through my friend. And he at the time, he was working with the rapper Jim Jones. And I started shooting, I got, I guess I got my first work really working with him doing like little projects. And I, I was just like interning at that time. Just, I don't think I was getting paid for everything. And I was just, he was just like, Hey, come here. I got this shit to shoot. I shoot it. And I did that for a while. And I was, and I started shooting a behind the scenes footage for Jim Jones. And once again, following him around and being around those guys with the camera opened up more opportunities for me. 
where and then one day one of his one, one of the guys from his crew this guy Noe, who's also a dope rapper from baltimore we were like in this shooting something maybe i think i was shooting behind the scenes for another video shoot for jim jones and then one of one of his homies is like oh you do videos oh we, we should do you know I need a video guy and whatever. And I was like, yeah, I do videos. And then I was like, here, look, I did this. And I showed him the shit from Japan. He's like, oh, that's, oh, yeah, that's dope. Yeah, let's shoot something. So that's how I got my first music video opportunity here in, in America was shooting this video for Noe in Baltimore, which also came out really well. And at that time, this is when the Canon 5D Mark II camera had just been released on the market. Yeah. And this camera is game changer, game changer. for everybody. Yeah. And I was definitely right there. I, the second I was waiting for that camera before it dropped, the second it did drop, I got that shit and I shot my first video on that. And then I probably shot about 30, 40 more videos on yeah. it since then. Like at yeah. the, my early career was like, Got this camera. I had some really nice old Nikon lenses that my that my mother had that she gave to me, and I just paired these old Nikon lenses on this fucking beautiful thirty-five millimeter sensor yeah. with the proper depth of field and I, and a full frame sensor. Yeah, and it was that was a game changer because before that, I don't know if you're familiar with the what you would have to do to shoot on film lenses digitally. Yeah, you needed that big fucking lettuce adapter. You know what? It, what that thing was like two feet long. You, you just had like a ridiculous setup to, to to do that. So the first music video that I did shot that I was DPing that was before five D. And so that I think we shot that. I think that we, we shot that on the HVX Panasonic HVX yeah, with the, the lettuce yeah. with the lettuce adapter yeah. and ice lenses on there. Yeah, and I shot a short, and, early short film on that HVX. I probably still have a picture of that camera setup. It was like with the adapter on it, and the shit was like this big. It was ridiculous looking. And then now I had this little thing that was like in my hands that could do the same thing. And yeah, that changed the game. So since so I started doing. That one video led to so many other videos, and I started working with Damon Dash. Off of that, off the strength of that video, too, I got more projects from him, and the next thing I got was, like, a super big project, and that was called BlackRock. And basically, it all happened organically, but basically he, it was a, ended up recording an album with the Black Keys and many famous hip-hop artists, legendary hip-hop artists. Damon Dash was involved with the Black Keys? Yes, so yeah, that's how then that's how I met the Black Keys was through him. Cause I was working with him, and literally, I think at the time actually, I was actually still working on that documentary the, about the the Japanese documentary about the artist Anarchy. I was working editing on that, but also at the same time, part time, I was working with Damon, shooting all this like BTS stuff and whatever on the side. And then one day he just called me out of the blue and he's like, "Hey, oh, I got I got a crazy proposal for you. What would you do?" What would you say if I had the Beatles and Jimi Hendrix and the Rolling Stones all in the studio together and you were able to shoot it? What would you do it? And I was like, yeah. And then it was like, oh, okay, I got this group to call the Black Keys. They're amazing, blah, blah, blah. And we got, and I got Jim Jones coming to the studio and I got Mo Steph coming to the studio and they're going to record some music. I was like, 
yeah, sign me up. And I and we went and I just went and shot this thing. And that thing. was in Alabama, right? No, actually, no. This was in New York. This was okay. So was this was before the Alabama thing. But that was so basically there was no even plan for that project. It was very organic, but it was really just yeah, the idea. Let me pair the Black Keys with some rappers. And he started just with Jim Jones and Most Def in just one session. And we went, met, we all met in the studio first time there. And I videotaped. I documented the fuck out of it. I don't think I stopped recording for a minute. I f- you were just working the whole time. Yeah, I just ca- I just captured every moment. And I had my 5D there too. So I was taking pictures too with the 5D. And I had my, I was shooting on HDV at the time. I had, a, I forgot the name of it. Sony Cam, Z1U, I think it was called. But anyway, it was just tons of footage, pictures. And I shot footage with the 5D too, which at the time, that footage at that time just would blow people's minds because people who didn't know about that camera, they'd be like, oh, who shot? How'd you shoot this? It would just blow people's minds. So, Anyway, from that one little session, I, like, cut. I had so much footage, I made a music video out of it. They, they did a song together. That was amazing. I made a music video out of it. And I took all that footage and cut a trailer. Nice. To, like, a doc that doesn't exist. And that, but the trailer and the music video was so hot that he would use that as a promotional tool, too, to show the black keys and show other artists and be like look at this project we're working on we want to get you on it and then started getting more artists involved and we ended up recording the whole album and i took the same process that i had on that first day and applied it to all the days so i would just be fly on the wall like recording ver- verite, verite recording every single second of everything and I actually did had a very loose, like, creative inspiration for the footage I was getting. But it came from, it was Godard's Sympathy for the Devil oh, with, with, with the Rolling Stones. Stones. Yeah. And I always just remembered that film was just like, they had, a, like, a lot of, like, abstract scenes that they would, like, insert into there. But the backbone of the film was just the Rolling Stones making this one song. And you would hear, you would just see them. You know, no, you know, real dialogue, no narrates. You just fly on the wall watching them as they create. And as it progresses, the pieces of the song start coming together. And you, just, and you see the progression of the song, how it builds and how it becomes the song in the end. So I took that same approach to this doc. And so, all the, so, I, so every song that they did on the album, I would, once again, record every track that they recorded, every piece of it, and then I edited it together, showing basically like how they built the song from conception to completion. Um, and then I, we ended up making like a whole web series out of it and turned that web series into the whole documentary. That's pretty cool. And then everything grew from there because that was like a huge project. That was the first thing I ever got, but that was like, number one was like some of the biggest rap names ever. I was just like, my mind was exploding it just thinking about the fact that I was able to shoot these people with my camera. I'm just like, oh my God, fucking RZA, fucking Most Def, fucking all these guys, just huge stars in my mind. And yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, that, that shit had a nationwide spotlight. We went to fucking Letterman. We were on Letterman and Jimmy Fallon, and I got to go there and film that shit. And then everything blew up from there as far as working music and working with the Black Keys. 
I stayed from that project. I would do more stuff with them, documenting, and that's where the Alabama thing came from. So when they were recording their album, Brothers. Uh, it's a good album. Great, great album. album. Amazing Played album. that many times. I think it might be my favorite. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we, so when they were recording that, bro, the, that album, they I went down. They took me down to Alabama with them to Muscle Shoals Studios. It's a uh, famous very, studio. Very famous recording studio. I think Rolling Stones recorded there too. Isaac Hayes and a couple Fleet, other Fleetwood Mac. Yeah, it's just yeah. like legendary studio. I think there's like a whole doc about that. I think I saw that too. doc. Yeah. It was interesting. Yeah. So that was an amazing experience. But once again, I took the same approach there. Just documented like every second, every day, every piece of the songs getting made, and then I made a music video out of that. And that came out great. That's pretty cool. And how did they treat you, the Blackies? Are they good guys to work with? Oh, yeah, they're awesome. I love those guys. We were, it, that was the best part of working with them. Because I, I would be intimidated by the rappers, I guess, because I grew up. A lot of them are like personalities that I've been a fan of so much, and I grew up knowing. Yeah. So they're very, they're just intimidating presences where it's very hard for me to be comfortable open with them as much but the black keys i've actually at the time i was not very familiar with them and i from working with them i became super fan but yeah. like before that i was like i knew of them i was not very familiar right and, they were, and that was and early also, on like in their earlier much earlier in their much career. earlier in their career they blew really blew up from the brothers album like yeah. before that was they were still very indie underground i feel and, but also i just we just very same age you just got along with oh, working with them was always very chill like they was just like hanging with homies really yeah they were nice, really man. cool they're talented very, guys very, for sure yeah, incredible incredible yeah very down to earth very cool guys i still love those guys we did a lot of fun stuff also just a fun detail i another project that i did shot shooting with them never came out but i we did i spent like a week with them where and the rizza and they were working on a whole album together. Oh, nice. And I took I the same approach there, and I recorded every single minute of it. I still got all that footage. They never did anything with it. But yeah. they did take one song from that session. It was a song called The Baddest Man Alive, and they actually did turn that into a single, and I think they put it out with RZA's movie, The Man with the Iron Fist. That might have been one of the singles on the movie, and they did a music video for it. That was fun. That oh, was cool. nice. Yeah. Yeah. But that was the only thing that came out of that whole session. But I still have all the footage. A lot of amazing songs got created there. That's you incredible. You never see the light. At the RZA a couple of times. Oh, yeah. awesome. He's that another talent, really talented individual. Yeah, that guy's a... Yeah, I've had the opportunity to shoot with him a bunch of times. And yeah, I'm just always in awe. Because that guy is probably my, one of my favorite artists in hip-hop in general. Just... That guy has influenced so so much in my life. Not even from the hip hop, just the fact, like, like Wu Tang and Kung Fu Cinema. Oh yeah. Because of Wu Tang, I feel like my knowledge, like I went through a real deep phase of Kung Fu movies. I did as well. And it was probably instigated by Wu Tang. Oh, undoubtedly. It was like symbiotic because I would look yeah. for movies, like. The Shaw Brothers. Like. I would like. I would find the movies that got quoted in the Wu Tang yeah, songs. The mystery, like, of oh, chess, mystery of Chess Box. Yeah. Oh, that song. I mean, that quote came from this movie. I got to see this movie. I was into that too. It went through the deep dive, and it, but it was all because of him. I yeah. mean, they were great. Once you get sucked into a good kung fu movie, there's yeah. nothing like I, it. I think the funny thing is, it wasn't. I don't think I 
really got into it in high school. Because I actually, like, there was a couple years where I even stopped listening to rap, I guess, when I was in high school. And then I came back into it. And then, yeah, I guess towards the end of high school and then college, that's when I was start really, like, when I came back into rap, then I got real into it because I was also catching up on a couple of years that I fell off the train. So I got super into it. And that's when I started really doing the deep digging. And, yeah, with the kung fu movies, that yeah. I probably changed my whole life because I might not have even been in Japan without that influence because... My love of kung fu movies led to my love of samurai film, and which led to my love of Yakuza films. And it was just a gradual progression, but my love of old samurai f- cinema and Yakuza cinema is one of the reasons why I started learning Japanese. <laughs> so yeah, that's so cool. that's, it all starts from a source. A yeah. little seed that was planted was all thanks to the RZA and Wu-Tang Clan. Incredible. And so when you first went out to Japan, did you ever anticipate that you'd be there for four years? No, no, I had no idea. Honestly, I went, the original plan was six months. And I was like, I'll figure it out. But the original plan was just go to language school and learn Japanese. And the first semester was like six months. After the six months, I was like, I'm doing great here. I don't want to leave. Kept it going. I was like working part time as like an English tutor and worked at some bars and I was going to school in Kyoto. I wasn't doing any production stuff really. I was shooting like skate videos and stuff with my friends. That's about it. But I did, one of the reasons I was learning Japanese is because the aesthetic of Japan I loved so much. I knew that I wanted to make something there. And I knew that in order to, one of the ways to be able to do that is to one, assimilate into that culture and understand it but also to learn the language and then i'll be able to be there and do more there so it all just blossomed from there i ended up staying in that school for two years got fluent in japanese that's amazing and then um, you still you still converse with people in japanese on a regular basis yeah yeah so i mean i lived there for four years but then since then that's where my music video career started and it never stopped so i while i was doing the music videos in america i was also doing them in japan at the same time so what I'd just be going back and forth for maybe 10 years. And sometimes it'll be just for months at a time. Like I'll go to Japan for, you can stay there up to three months on a tourist visa. Yeah. I would be working off the books, obviously. And just artists would fly me out. And then I would post up for as long as I could, usually until I ran out of work or money, because I'd probably spend it all partying or something. But yeah, I would just go for as long as I can. And usually every time I would go to Japan, a lot of people that I work with in America be like, Oh, when you coming back, when you come back, oh, I need you to shoot this, I need you to shoot this. And then when there was, like, something immediate enough, I was like, all right, I'm coming back. And then I would go back to America and shoot a couple of things there. But then while I would be in America, the homies in Japan would be like, oh, when you when can you come back to Japan? I was like, let me know. And then I would go back. And I was doing that for forever. It's a big part of my life. I still speak Japanese, although I haven't, because of COVID and all this stuff, I haven't been back in three years since, actually, the last time I was in Japan, I was shooting a music video right at the start of COVID. It was right when, right before we got COVID here, Yeah, but they had COVID there. So I remember leaving New York and being like, oh shit, I'm going to Japan. They got this fucking Corona thing there. I hope I don't get it. Yeah. And at that time, people didn't know what the hell it was yet. And so- 
it was there was more of a they knew it was there no but no but they didn't know people didn't I mean, realize it was gonna be here that's right yeah but like they definitely knew the severity of it there that was but they were ahead of the curve because they they had it there first that's i right. remember like look coming from here and you just hear about oh that scary coronavirus <sighs> thing i'm gonna be careful i'm gonna wear a mask out there which also is not crazy because you're always, always wear a mask in Japan in the winter anyway. Like, way before COVID, I always wear a mask in Japan. It's just, like, the culture there. Yeah. But anyway, went out there, and while I was out there, shit just started blowing up in Korea, and then it, I think it, like, the COVID came home with me. I was always like, man, I hope I'm not, like, one of the people that brought COVID back to New York or something. Because <laughs> <laughs> like, literally, I came home, and a week later, we were locked Man, down. I think there's enough international flights between... New York yeah, no, and China, no, 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 New York. But yeah, it's funny because my cinematographer, I've told the story in the past, but his name is Alex. And like before COVID, he's always like a paranoid sort of guy or cautious. Let me say that he's, Alex is very cautious. If somebody's on set drinking a bottle of Poland Springs, for example, he might tell one of the PAs like, you don't want to drink it because the, the chemical PVCs that they use in that plastic are not sufficient yeah, yeah, for yeah. human consumption. But that kind of stuff and he's like hey this corona thing he's i've been following it and he's it's going to change life as we know it and i'm like alex stop being fucking paranoid man he's like trust me on this it will change life as we know it over here it's impressive foresight here yeah Yeah. and i was like huh i was like what if he's right something just clicked i was like i think alex is right on this one and so i gathered all the stuff from my office in manhattan and brought it home i'm like I'm going to just treat it like I'm never coming yeah. back here because, and then a week later, it was like full lockdown mode. They did not foresee that coming, but I can say that just the timing of me going to Japan right at that point and going to, through Asia and not only Japan, but I had to transfer in Korea airport, which was like ground zero at the time. It was like completely empty and just full of people in hazmat suits. That was like, it was so <laughs> scary. But then going through that like very traumatic experience, like when I came back to New York, I wasn't that far ahead of the curve, but maybe like a week ahead, I was like, I told my girlfriend, I was like, go get some toilet paper. <laughs> <laughs> so by the way, switching gears here, yes. I, I'd watched your short film, Jonas yes. wrote and direct. Did you write it or? I did not write it. No. So this is a collaborative project between me and two of my very good friends that I've known my whole life. They're we went to grade school together, middle school, high school. We even worked together. We even made a film together after high school, after college. We did like a feature that we just super low budget shot on video cameras. We, so we have a history of we've, we've always been filmmaking together. And my best friend, Jeremy Dash, he's a actor. He actually acted in my, my one of my films in high school. He acted in my final film in college and he's always been around me in my life and always been an actor so we've anyway we basically we cooked up this project together where my one friend is he's a writer and a producer so he did the writing and my other friend did the acting and i did the directing and we all collaborated together i really and we came up with this oh thank you thank you yeah we came up with the story you know we worked on the story together but the writing was done by my friend brian trishan yeah, beautiful cinematography as well. Oh, I love yeah. the lighting and yeah. the shot compositions. And I guess um, g- give the audience the title of the film and what it's about a little bit. The film is called The Dark Age, and it is a, I would say, a post-apocalyptic science fiction thriller. And it's about these... You don't have to give too much away, but maybe just... just yeah, it's, just uh, it's basically in, in the future, 
this is obviously an apocalyptic scenario, but it's a basically a future where society is long collapsed and there's no power. There's no power on Earth. The solar storm knocked out all the power and electronics on Earth, and, and so everyone is without power. And these two kind of scavengers who are trying to survive are roaming the dangerous wilderness together and come across a man who has power, has a mysterious power source. And uh, they are intrigued by this, and it leads them to try to take this power source from him. And that leads to a lot of drama and tension. Yeah, which, by the way, a solar flare could happen. Yeah. It's like a feasible scenario. Yeah, my, my whole concept for it at the time was I really love I love the post-apocalyptic genre. Just so many great films have been done. And especially at that time, though, the most, I'd say, most recent entries to the post-apocalyptic genre at the time I made that, they're all zombie movies. And That's right. my idea was like, I want to make a post-apocalyptic movie that has nothing to do with zombies or viruses, anything fantastical. Like, what if it's just, like, really grounded, like, grounded in science some way? And then a Lord of the Flies sort of scenario. Yeah. And I think Children of Men was a great influence just as far as, just of, like, taking that, that genre, but making it something else, making it a lot more grounded and just real and visceral. Versus, I don't know, like, I enjoy The Walking Dead. There's something about zombies that I just can't take seriously. But yeah, and how much (laughs) of it could you do? Yeah, so that was my main idea for that film came from, I wanted to, like, try this, but, like, in a very real fashion. And and the thing is, like, after I made a movie, now it's honestly, I feel like that genre has had more of a resurgence, so there's been, like, a lot more post-apocalyptic material that mm-hmm. out in the past couple of years where I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm just not so original anymore. But at the right. time, I was like, oh, yo, this is something I want to see. So that's why. I, yeah, you know, I thought it was really cool. Inspired to make well it. Done. Yeah. But um, it was a lot of fun. It was just really the best time. Did you guys shoot on an Alexa? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we did. I that, see, yeah, I see that cinematic. That, that was always the criteria for me. Yeah. I when like, I, as soon as I saw it, the first scene, I was like, oh, this was shot on an Alexa. Yeah, so. we did. That was like, it was Alexa on Cook Anamorphix. It was fantastic. Good lenses, very good choice. Very expensive. And that was, for me, that was like the deal breaker for me. It was like, whatever budget we need for camera and lenses, that's... I'm, that's most important. Yeah. I got to make sure I got some really good fucking lenses and it's got to be on an Alexa because I like I wouldn't. It's not for me. I was like, it's not going to be the quality that I desire if it's anything else. Yeah. So we definitely, hey, we had to cut a lot of corners elsewhere in the budget to afford that shit, but it was who, worth it. And who DP'd it? And it was peed by a friend of mine, Julian Delacruz. And was it hard for you to relinquish control of the camera since you're... It was really hard because I, number one, very hand, not only hands-on, I am also a DP. So I, in 95% of every music video I ever made, I also shot. Yeah. And my some of them just even by myself. Sure. But just now. always been hands-on, always used to having the camera, taking the camera and figuring out where it goes and feeling it out. I didn't have 
But I was, as a director, I was actually very excited to not do that. I was like, nice. I was like, I've, I've always wanted to work with the DP and I don't always have the opportunity. I, I always reserve that because I have the ability to DP myself. When I have especially something with a limited budget, I'm like, I could get a DP or I can get these really nice lenses. Right, <laughs> right, shoot right. it myself. So yeah. a lot of times I end up just getting the lenses. But this time it was like, all right, we, I want to do this proper so I can focus on the directing and not so much on everything else. So I did. I relinquished control. I was still very hands-on for sure, but it felt good to relinqu relinquish control. And he's also like an amazing professional and had a lot. He has a lot more big set experience than I do because he's a professional camera operator working on big series movies shows he's union yeah, guy look great up. man yeah he's a pro and steady cam op too so he brought a steady oh, cam nice. out and yeah he was it was yeah it was awesome working with him and also just i don't know i don't know how that would have came out if i had to dp it because i on the directing side i was already like over my head like yeah shit falling apart oh god what are we gonna do sure, i gotta figure lot. out this scene i don't up. have enough time to get this shot how are we gonna yeah. get this and it was like and crazy so you can't steven soderberg it on your first yeah project thank like that god, yeah. thank god i had a dp for that and, yeah uh, you could always do that later on but it's you know yeah soderberg is incredible right yeah. that he like directed and shot the ocean's 11's movies and yeah all these it's, it's insane like some yeah some of those i mean there's a lot of amazing director dps out there that still blow my mind like how they do it but it also helps when you have an infrastructure there and, oh, and people yeah. there to support your directing DP because you're definitely, if you're doing that, you're going to be probably slipping in some other areas. So this particular movie, like I was, I always look back on it. I was like, man, if this was like a different subject material, I probably could have DP'd it. But because I was doing something that's more of fantasy, there's so much more that yeah. had to go on just with the sets and the costume and the, the lighting. It's like if I was just shooting some some shit on the street with some people. Yeah, I'm not. I maybe don't have to worry so much about directing so many departments and so many people where I can get on the ground to do. Right. But we are a very small crew, very limited resources, and yeah, that was a very crucial role to fill. Yeah, find a DP for that. So. We reconnected at YoFi. It played at YoFi Festival, yeah, which is a cool festival. Yeah, it's a it regional festival, but yeah, a lot of fun. Great to take it back you. to hometown as well. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I guess now moving to the second portion of the podcast. But bef before we do it, what are you working on? What's next on the agenda for you? Are you planning on doing more narrative work? Yeah, yeah. I'm really. I feel like I'm on a bit of a transition point in my career. Because I've been doing a lot of different stuff. I was mainly focused on music videos for the longest time as a director. And I've probably, I think I've counted recently, but I know I've made over 80, 90 music videos yeah, in my career. Huge number of music videos. And But the thing is, as long as I did it, and as amazing as the experiences were, it was never a very lucrative career for me. And I was always making it by the paycheck to paycheck, sometimes no paychecks. And <sighs> sometimes you know, people that owe you paychecks. People owe me paychecks. And it's really, you got to love what you do. Like, I was doing it for the love. Like, I was, I'm just like, it was never even, 
I was always hoping it would turn into something that I could make a lot of money doing or something. Man, we are past the 90s when people yeah, had yeah. serious $1 million budgets per video. Yeah. Or more. Uh, I just, I never gave it up. So I still, I'm still doing music videos, but I stopped focusing on it. So I stopped yeah. making that my main thing. And so maybe about five years ago, I started focusing on DPing. And since then, I've mostly been professionally mostly been working as a dp doing a lot of commercials docs some music videos and then i'll be doing music videos every once in a while when the situation is right when i'm very inspired which is great so now i don't have to rely on it for a living so now i can only do the music videos that really inspire me so i'm still directing really focused on dping and but the biggest transition for me is at this point what we're like 40 years old i'm like all this time I was doing all those music videos and all this other stuff. I really just wanted to be making movies and narrative films. And I got sidetracked. That was always before I started doing the music videos. That was what I wanted to do. And I got so caught up in that, that, that industry and what I was doing that I didn't lose. I never lost sight of yeah. my goal, but I was never very, clear-minded about how to achieve it so I was like and plus I'm always just getting so many projects thrown at me didn't have a lot of headspace to like really think about my own work yeah and, now and it wasn't until I started focusing on the DPing where now I have a lot more time free because I'm not spending two couple weeks on editing or pre-production like more like on set I get off set okay and now I'm like my brain is free again since then I've been working on the narrative narrative projects started with this short film this short film the dark age we've now actually wrote into a feature film script that we're trying to pitch right now we totally changed the whole dynamic of it too so it's a totally new movie and it's called disforma and we have this script that we're trying to shop around and try to see how we can get this thing made and i'm also working on another script as well myself that I'm trying to make in the near future it's gonna be a little gritty crime thriller set in new york and and i'm trying to dp narrative films as much as i can i'm just trying to right now just meet people who, who are looking for dps so if anyone is listening to this and you have a script and you're interested to make it into something hey, reach feel out free to, to reach out to me because honestly i'm just trying to i'm just trying to shoot as much narrative yeah. stuff and i could vouch I could and say jonah's a very talented guy he's got a really good eye and this won't be his first rodeo. He's been yeah. doing this for a while. Yeah, I can say every, if you go look at a lot, not all my favorite music videos that I've done, a majority of the music videos I've done have all just been exercises in filmmaking. Like I've always tried to put stories into yes, the videos. I'm glad you mentioned yeah. that. I'm so happy you mentioned that because I've only done a couple of music videos and that was always my sort of stipulation with, the, with whoever I worked with. I'm like, listen, we're not going to just do some... Yeah. People dancing around type of. Yeah. I was know, always stuff. trying like, to try, try something out. And I noticed that on your videos, like there's always, even when I watched the prodigy videos, like that King of New York style, like Frank white kind of theme. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that motif. That was pretty cool. And some of your other stuff with Freddie Mays as well. Fred, yeah. The Freddie Gibbs stuff. Freddie Gibbs. Stuff, was, I don't know. That's that all narrative. Yeah. It was kind of, it's like, I could, I mean, I can give you like 10 video examples right now of music videos I did that all have the same structure to it where i would just be like interpreting the stories of the songs and illustrating them in scenes but yeah. because you don't have dialogue it's just it was such a great 
exercise in, in, in storytelling in, in without storytelling. In visual storytelling because you do you do the lyrics serve as a little bit of the narration but because they move so fast you can't really do see for say with the rap lyrics because you don't have enough time to to see what they're saying so yeah but so what i would do is focus like really narrow it down to the most important elements of the story that needed to be shown and just show these instead of focusing on every lyric just connecting to these like key points to the lyrics and keeping it more abstract leaving more to the imagination and yeah for me i don't have a really big extensive history of completed films but i have these music videos that to me are like they all play as short films like i watch them and i love to watch the story of them yeah and stuff. nice man so now we're going to segue into the second portion of the podcast where I ask each guest to share what are two of their favorite movie scenes. Ah, uh, yes. And it, it's a tough question. I would say it doesn't have to be absolute, but just any yeah. two movie scenes that you like. And Jonah shared a scene from Boogie Nights, which is the uh-huh. opening of the film. Yes. Paul Thomas Anderson's second feature film. His yeah. first one was called Hard Eight, and then Boogie Nights was a big deal. It was yeah, with Mark right. Wahlberg. And I guess tell us about it. Like one of the most difficult questions you can ask obviously and trying to list my favorites at anything if i want to do it seriously i'll probably spend like a year deliberating in my mind yeah it's uh, i just this is i get really dorky about this stuff but anyway so i I, there's a lot of scenes i want to tackle but definitely boogie nights that opening shot and that's definitely like just one shot that's just always been burned in my mind since the the moment the shot starts off outside of a club and at first we see the signage yeah and the, it's acting funky it's not just like a yeah well, a, a linear sort of it's just it's just for me i'm sure for a lot of people it's just one of the most incredible one takes long take shots ever achieved how many yeah. how long does it run do you know i think it's like two three minutes maybe yeah. or something i don't it was yeah. I, and then the camera pulls back and then cranes down and then a it's car st- it's Starts on the crane and transitions to steady. Into the steady. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think the guy probably sitting, yeah, sitting on the crane and then walked off it. Yeah. And then we see a car pull up. Burt yeah, Reynolds' car, car pull up. I mean, it's out. just it's just the most dynamic and efficient shot. Just the way that movie opens, it's just it just burns an image in your mind. Like it's so visually compelling. I think Paul Thomas and Anderson was like 26 years old when he directed Yeah, it's so crazy. Yeah. But yeah, that shot is like efficient storytelling, man. It's, that shit sets up the whole movie and just the pacing, the vibe, the music, the movement, the precision of the steady cam moves too is just like well, it's just so well choreographed and you, it introduces you to every character, their relationships, their dynamic. It's just everything happens in that scene. We see Luis Guzman yeah. in the opening and yeah. yeah, it's really good. It's uh, definitely reminiscent of things that we've seen from Robert Altman. I know that, that mm-hmm. was a major inspiration. Yeah, definitely uh, in the multiple character dialogues uh, happening at once and almost like eavesdropping into like stuff as you I wonder how many takes by. they did. I did the research because I was like, you know, I'm, I got to talk about nice. this. I gotta, I wanna, you are I wanna doing be, your homework. Petrosino was wrong about you yeah, all I these years homework. later. Uh, yeah. Seven takes they took. Amazing. And apparently... Only one of them was usable. 
There yeah, was they said that makes they, sense. They sure. just say they seven takes. I think like you were saying, like one of them they like tripped over a cord. Other yeah. one they bumped into this, and I'd be more surprised. Lights were in uh, the wrong place. That doesn't surprise me at all. I'd be more surprised if you're like they did seven and PTA really had to decide which one because they were all pristine. Yeah, no, they had one good one. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there was a lot of interesting facts there. Another interesting fact that I learned that I didn't know was if you watch in the beginning, it opens up. The, the marquee that says Boogie Nights, and then the camera does a t- like a Dutch to the yep. side to read the sign that says Reseda yes. going down. That's right, and then tilts back down. I always thought that was just cool, creative move. Also, like an interesting way to read the vertical sign. For me, I just always thought, oh, that's so cool that he did that. You know why they did that? Why? Apparently, is because to complete the move, there's like a gas station far in the background that was not oh, fitting modern. for the time. Yeah. Interesting. So they tilted yeah. to crop out the gas station and come back down so into funny. it without hitting yeah, it. That's so a like, Because it, that's a good example of how sometimes limitations enhance creativity. Because yeah. I also thought it was an intentional, that's just the vibe of the movie. It's like punk. No, it was practical as well. I didn't know that, but I thought it was really that's cool. That's really cool. But yeah, just fucking Great, just yeah. legendary shot, and I'm always, I'm always your cinematography is you know, as a DP. This is always the stuff that really resonates with me the most, as far as like my most memorable movie scenes. Like when even when I was thinking about it, my most memorable movie scenes is not always because of the content of what's happening in the scene. It, it's because it, it's how it was shot. Gotcha. So it's this huge element for it for me. So yeah, everything I brought up was because of how it shot and that yeah. is just like one of the most fucking impressive steady cam shots in ever the history done. of cinema and really of seeing that as a kid just blew my mind you knew like the magnitude visually. of it even as a kid yeah yeah no, even just, like when you came out like even in, i guess it came out when we were like what freshmen in high school yeah but even at that age you knew wow that's an impressive yeah, no, because I was obsessed with filmmaking at that time already. So I was yeah. already like into, whoa, that's crazy, steady. But I didn't really know about the technical. You didn't know how they pulled it off, but you just knew I don't that even it was. I think I knew what a DP was at that time. Yeah. But I knew what they were doing with the camera because I always pay attention to like camera movement. It's always been just like something I'm obsessed with. Yeah. Just how the camera, even just in my music videos, it's always about like the camera movement. So that that segues really nicely into our next the next scene, which you ah, yes. picked from Scorsese's Goodfellas. And oh no, we were doing La Haine. Oh, we're gonna do La Haine. Yeah. Okay. No, Let's talk good. La Haine. I swapped Goodfellas for the Boogie Nights because that's also another impressive steady cam shot. But I figured that if I was gonna talk about long steady cam takes, I thought that. Yeah. Even more impressive. So, yeah, let's talk La Haine. French film. Give audiences that are not familiar with it. La Haine is an amazing French film from the mid-90s. I'm Gangster s- film. I'm going to guess 95, maybe. Yeah. And directed by Matthew Kasovitz, amazing actor and director, starring Vincent Cassel. Vincent Cassel was... Yeah, one of his first roles. I don't know if it's his first role, but... Uh, early, early... One of his Vincent. early roles. It was before Black Swan. Yes. It was way before Black <laughs> Swan. This is just one of my favorite movies ever made, probably. Def- definitely in my top three, top five, somewhere around there. It's give, always rotating top give five. Give people a context with what the film is about a little bit and just what the what the mm, scene is about. The film is about, it's about these kids in the Parisian suburbs, the projects out there, that basically it's a lot about like 
the social strife of the time and the political climate between like the poor and the rich and the police oppression and the, the poor and minorities in France. And yeah, I don't, I'm not from France, so I don't have as much background on, on the depth of that situation. But a lot of what I learned about France and about French culture got inspired from that movie because when that shit came out, once again, pre-internet talk, but it's like we didn't really have access. Like as a hip-hop fan, I knew that maybe people like hip-hop in France, but I didn't know what the hell was going on there. And then I right. see this movie where it's, I'm used to seeing a lot of coming-of-age and like street movies like in America in that era that I was really into growing up. And then I see there's, oh, there's the French version of it, and there's, wow, they're doing the same thing. But then also, in addition to that, like, just stylistically, man, like, visually, that film is incredible. Like, they, they were just doing, other, because it's French, and it got a, got a, I feel like, a different background of influences in that culture. And you got the new wave cinema and all this more, like, artistic and expressive background in cinema where I, you could see that seeping into this kind of material where, like, in, in America, it's maybe shot a lot more straightforward. They were doing so much more, like, really cool abstract like vibey stuff in Lahaine that just yeah nobody's doing at the time it was so dope it was, it was so in black dope. and white yeah it was black and white and so give us some the scene that you'd like to highlight yeah the scene my favorite scene of that film and it's just something that just always just burned burn very strong image in my memory is there's this one scene where it's not the main characters. It just cuts basically to the scene of the of the projects there and everyone out doing their thing. It's all like natural sound. And then you cut into this one apartment and this DJ has got some turntables. And he puts like a speaker up in the window. The DJ's name is DJ Cutkiller. He's like really famous DJ in France at that time. Shout um, out to DJ Cutkiller. Yeah, DJ Cutkiller. And anyway, so he puts the speakers in the window and he starts setting up some records and he starts cutting up cutting up some music that's also like the theme of the movie where in it's the music is in French but the words that he's cutting up is I think Anika Police which is fuck the police so basically and so he was cutting it was like KRS one that's the sound of the right, police right. and then he was cutting it with the French words Nicola Police fuck the police and anyway yeah. and then he blasting that out into the projects from his big ass speakers. But then what happens in the film is as he's blasting this music out his window the camera begins to magically travel out the window as if it was the sound of the music. And it's like this fucking, it just, it's a powerful image. Yeah. Just the whole vibe changes. And yeah, just and the fucking camera just like out of nowhere, boop, just starts drifting out of the window, slowly floating. And then just starts to glide over the projects real slow. And the music starts to fade and like, echo and you hear echo as it gets higher and higher the music you hear it like echoing against the buildings and and that's that shot but man that shit was that shit just transported me to somewhere else that as I, great I don't, films I don't, could I don't, do right yeah yeah it was just like it was just like that moment but it was so out of the left as well at the time like it just opened as, as far as filmmaking goes too it just opened my eyes to like what could be done yeah like you don't have to always be so literal. Yeah. You can you can express your feelings not just with the dialogue or action, but just how you present things as well. Yeah. Uh, and man, that shit was it's a great it was, film. It was just a moment. And then also the great part of it too is like 
when you're watching it and it's definitely like a cool high thing too where it's like really kind of space you feel you're literally like flying the shot is flying so it feel high like just watching it you're like whoa that's cool but like that feeling that i have literally then you experience through the characters in the film because the next shot is like them on the ground and you like they're like damn i'm high man <laughs> that's pretty funny and then he sees like a cow or something like Dennis. that was just like another abstract thing that happens because they're high in the movie but that was a great well, that's a great that. great explanation jonah where could people follow along with your stuff man uh, yeah i guess my biggest internet presence would be on instagram so you can follow me at jonastison.com I mean, at Joe Nasty Song at on Instagram, and I have a website as well, just with recent works posted, and that's at uh, me. Nice. Yeah. And Jonah, appreciate you being on the podcast today, man. Yeah, thank you for breaking my podcast, Jerry. Today, <laughs> thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast with your host Seth Cota.